Missions has always been the critical activity of the church, but who is supposed to do it? Is it only for professionals? No. It's for anybody who's met Jesus. Today, we discuss Christianity's first missionary in Acts chapter 8, and we discuss news and answer some of your questions. I'm so glad to see you today. This is The Deep End with a very hoarse, Tim Hatch. I gotta tell you, you people gotta stop working me so hard. I can't get my I can't get my voice back. And welcome in Chris McEwen to the Thank you. podcast. Thank you very much. And Minnesota Mike over in the production studio. Hello, Minnesota Mike. Hey. <laughs> very, <Howdy>. very, very <laughs> low words today. Few words. I'm a man of few words, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. oh, I was southern. Now you're southern, Mike. <laughs> I know. Okay, whatever you are over there, welcome in. The man of many voices. Maddie and Kelly over there uh, in the tech booth. Thanks so much for your guys' help and work here on the Deep End Podcast. And thank you for everybody joining us online. If you're on Facebook, move over to YouTube because that's where we want you to be. YouTube.com slash The Deep End TV. Please do this. I keep saying this every week and not many of you listen. Most of you watch us on the Waters Church YouTube. We want you to move over from the Waters Church YouTube to the Deep End TV YouTube. So youtube.com slash the Deep End TV. Make sure you go there. And then in the comments below, let us know where you're watching from. And uh, you know what? Send us some messages. Do you appreciate this content? Do you like it? What's the best part? What do you want more of? We want to continue to improve this show so that you love tuning in. So I am Horse. And uh, that's because I had a three-week, no, two-week vacation, Chris. Mm-hmm. And then whenever I come from back from vacation, I've got no, like, strength in my vocal cords. <laughs> well, you brought the good weather back when you came back from Florida. And, and we need to talk about that. Yeah. We need to talk about that. And that brings me right to the Deep End News. Deep End News. The news you choose if you could choose news. So the, the news today is going to be something that I think you've probably heard about if you're on social media at all mm-hmm. today or on any news site. Um, but it has to do with the weather, and, I, and it has to do with my voice. Because here's the deal. <laughs> it really does. It all ties together. Listen. So whenever the seasons change for me up here in New England, that's when I get sick. Yeah. You know, I'm good in winter. I'm good in summer. But it's uh, fall and spring. So here we are. It's January what? January 23rd. 21st. 21st. Well, one month down of winter. One month. Woohoo. Only really, two really months to go. This one, eh? <laughs> Only two months to go for winter part one. <laughs> yeah. Then we get winter part two from March 21st until April 21st. Don't get me started. Okay, anyway. Um, but anyway, what happened was last week we had 70 degree weather. Yeah, here. it was crazy. In January. Yeah. Like once in a I century. I loved it. Went for a long walk with the dogs. It was I great. loved it too. But yeah. I think that all the little. You know, pathogens came out again. Yeah, it's true. The bugs come back alive. All the all the diseases. Yeah, got into my body and get you sick. I got that that autumn sickness again. So mm. here I am, horse from vacation and from the climate change. Ooh, see, there you go. There it oh, is. Good transition. That's what it is, right there. Climate change. So we got to talk about some news. What do you got for us? Chris. So uh, Greta Thunberg, we know her. She's the 17-year-old that went to the UN about a year ago to, uh, yeah, to chastise the world on climate change and demand immediate change. This is all wrong. It is all wrong. And uh, (laughs) was it last week she went to Davis, uh, I'm pronouncing that wrong. Davos. Davos Council and basically said, hey, it's been a year, nothing's happened. How dare you? People are suffering. They are. Yeah, they're, they're <laughs> suffering. And so, no, she's all over social media, like you said, Twitter. She's got her own YouTube channel. She's got her own IMBD page, so I, I don't know what that's about. For the she, older members of our audience, what is IMDB? Yeah, so that's where you can look up any actor, any person that's in any movie, and just see their credits, see what they're involved what they're in. in. Yeah. And she's been in already at 17 and only been an activist a year. She's already been in a bunch of um, documentaries on climate change. So, so the she, news is that at the Davos Economic World Forum... right. Okay, she has said what? She has basically said nothing's been done. Nothing's been done yet. Nothing. And so, How dare you? And the big, the big problem here is that the billionaires outnumber the teenagers. I heard that today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How, is that, <laughs> how does that work? I don't know. If it's 1%, how many teenagers do we have? That's I don't, right. I don't get that's that math. Right. Wait I don't a get second. That math. I thought they were 1% of the population. One-tenth of 1%. Uh-huh. Anyway, so nothing's been done except to cause a lot of people... Fear and anxiety. Yeah, she's been doing a great job with that. Because <laughs> I have this article here, and it's from the um, Telegraph, 
which is a London newspaper. Okay. The title of the, t- the article, thank you, Doug, Deep End Watcher, for sending me this. <laughs> I love your news articles, too, people. People send me the news articles. I'm going to share them. Oh, boy. Uh, parents told not to terrify children over climate change as rising numbers treated for, quote, eco-anxiety. This is all wrong. This is all wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because when I was a kid, what was it about? What was it? It was about during the season changes. It was in the winter. It was sledding in the beach. Yeah. In the summer, it was the beach. In the fall, it was you know football outside with your friends. Rake leaves, rain. Yeah. You know what did you do as a kid? I never worried about the climate. For heaven's no, sake, I was outdoors skating. Yeah, I had fun. I enjoyed the world. I didn't. I wasn't as scared that I was going to die. But anyway, right. Uh, this article says rising numbers of children are being treated for eco anxiety. Uh, experts have said, as they warn parents against terrifying their youngsters with talk of climate catastrophe. Mm. Protests by groups such as Extinction Rebellion, the recent fires in the Amazon, and the apocalyptic warnings by the teenage activist Greta Thunberg have prompted a tsunami of young people seeking help. Uh, So this is actually having an effect, a very abysmal effect, on young people, and that's where I think we had to wake up and say, you know, this is getting crazy. Yeah. So, you know. Well, you know, I'm always the conspiracy theorist, so I just came up with a new one. She actually <laughs> must have stock in anxiety drugs, and that's <laughs> right. what she's pushing. I don't know. I don't know about that, but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's, it's possible. This is nothing new, as we went over in the first Deep End episode, ladies and gentlemen, of this season, and I'll just take you back through it. This has been talked about. You know, you got to really wake up and smell the coffee, mm. people. Do your research. Don't just listen to what you see on news sites that you, you know, get force-fed to you by the aggregate news feeders that are all aligned uh, with certain narratives of the news. Um, this is a real problem uh, that we don't get real news anymore. But this is back, you know, we go back five decades ago. The New York Times, uh, Sunday, August 10th, 1969. Full pollution sees lack of time. This guy... Uh, Paul R. Ehrlich. This is the grand grand poobah of the climate change, you know, yeah. crisis movement. But he basically said um, that in the, in this article, it says right there, we must realize that unless we are extremely lucky, everyone will disappear in a cloud of blue steam in twenty years. <laughs> so that was 1989, and. We didn't disappear. We were actually having Still quite here. a good time in Still 1989. Uh, dire famine forecasted by 1975. This is from the Los Angeles Times. This stuff is nothing new. Again, Stanford University, Paul Elrich said, the time of famine is upon us and will be its worst and most disastrous by 1975. Um, this is from the Boston Globe right here in our backyard, Thursday uh, April 16th, 1970, scientists predict new ice age by the 21st century. Mm. So, you know, uh, this is nothing new. Brown University sent a letter to the president uh, back in 1972, uh, George Nixon, basically saying that unless you do something, and why do something, they mean raise taxes and spend a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, maybe she doesn't have stock in a uh, anxiety medication, mm. but maybe in a uh, ecological, you know, Some business. Some new technology. Some new technology. Yeah. I don't know what it is, but... Nothing new. Um, U.S. scientists see new ice age coming. This is from the Washington Post, 1971. Could be 50 or 60 years away from a disastrous new ice age. Uh, and then the Independent, this is 2004, saying the title of the article, Why Antarctica Will Soon Be the Only Place to Live. And remember, 2004, I think it was Al Gore who was running around oh, the yeah. world saying it was all over, it was all over. These are chicken little people. Yeah. I mean, it just never ends. Nothing, the Bible says in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. Right. And you read these things, you say, oh, yeah, there is nothing new under the sun. Look this stuff up because it's amazing to find it. I remember when I was researching this, there, and I could have gone over 100 articles. I picked out the five that stuck out to me. Yeah. I could have, I could have picked out two hundred articles. Well, there's one here from a twelve hundred year old Viking. Yeah, prophecy. share that one with us. That's well, from yeah, twelve hundred year old Viking climate change prediction engraved in stone. So uh, after one of the Viking kings' sons died in battle in the ninth century, this is five hundred thirty six A.D. So we're going back a long sixth time. Sixth century. Sixth century. Oh, it says ninth century. Okay, yeah. uh, but. They actually talked about a climate crisis then after after he died and and said it was the worst uh, time in history to be alive because of this fog that went over the whole globe and it caused famine and everything. But they were calling for crisis 
1,200 years ago for 1, the same stuff. 1,200 years ago. Yeah, they even put it in stone. So. And you know what? We look back on the Vikings and we think, oh, they're so stupid. They're stupid Vikings. Yeah. 1,200 years from now, people are going to be looking back on us and saying, oh, they were stupid Americans. <laughs> <laughs> you know, of course they thought uh-huh. that. It's just nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. Ladies and gentlemen, please do not get caught up in this nonsense. Yeah. Anyway, that's the news segment. I don't want to spend too much time on that because we're going to go to Ask Anything. And that's why you're here, too, as well, Chris. You're yeah. going to ask me some questions. I, this is one of my favorite um, moments on the, pot, on the uh, deep end. I love to hear your questions. So if you ever have one, you can send it anonymously through text to 508-316-9333. It's on the screen there. Or through your email, ask at deepend.tv. So that's where you can send your questions. Or you can ask them publicly on the comment section in Facebook, Twitter, uh, Facebook or uh, YouTube right below me. Again, if you're not watching on YouTube, uh, youtube.com slash the deep end TV, move over there. Move over there and then like and subscribe. Thumbs up. I love the thumbs up too. Uh, thumbs down if you want to be a pain in the neck. But thumbs up if you love Jesus <laughs> and you're going to heaven. Uh, so ask anything. We're going to get into this uh, question and answer. Let's, let's go through these as quickly as possible, then we'll get to the book of Acts in, in just a moment. So, Chris, question number one. Number one, how does a Christian know if marriage is in God's plan for their life? How does a Christian know if marriage is in God's plan for their life? Well, I love this question, yeah. first of all, because what a, what a wonderful question to not assume that you have to do the marriage thing. Like Paul the Apostle even says to the Corinthians, mm-hmm. I wish that all men could be like me, which is unmarried, yeah. and remain in that station in life. Um, let's take a, a broad overview in scripture of what marriage is. Marriage is good. Marriage is from God. Marriage is between a man and a woman. It's meant to be dissolved only in death. And it is critical to the establishment of society and community. And wherever you have uh, more um, faithful marriages, you have healthier, uh, better equipped children. This is just sociological fact, right? And so God ordained marriage for the uh, propagation of the species and for um, the benefit of society. Uh, it was the way in which the earth is populated. It is still the way the earth is populated, but it is God's thing. He loves marriage. In Malachi, at the end of the Old Testament, is called a covenant. Mm-hmm. So covenants were serious in the Old Testament. You can only dissolve a covenant in death, and you can only enact a covenant in blood. Now, I could get into something about that, but I'm not going to about the marriage night and blood. But nonetheless, um, <laughs> this is one of the most esteemed uh, sociological institutions, social institutions, in the universe, marriage. And you think about it, marriage is the symbol that God uses in the New Testament through the writers of Paul and Peter and Jesus, not the writer Jesus, but Jesus himself, as the picture of God's relationship to his people, which is Christ the bridegroom and the church the bride. So let's not do what some Christians have been known to do, which is make marriage nothing, because right. it's actually a very beautiful and very necessary thing. But at the same time, let's not do what some other Christians do, which says to make marriage everything. And I think you've got to find your own path as an individual. Now, this person asks, how do I know if it's in God's plan for my life? Well, um, my question to you is, can you go without it? Because if you can go without it, I would suggest you do it. Yeah. Like, let's, I'm not going to be one of those people that says you're only truly a real strong Christian when you're having children and, or, you know, married and having children, and those children are going to church. The, the, you know, the classic nuclear family example, right? Two kids, a dog, white picket fence. That's not necessarily the esteemed picture of Christian faithfulness. So can you go without it? Uh, is lust a problem for you? Because even in Corinthians, Paul says, if you've got lust problems, then get married. Mm. You know, if you can't handle yourself, and that is sexual desire is a strong thing and it has been given to us, it has been implanted into our DNA to make sure that we do the original command of scripture, which is fill the earth. How's it going to get filled? Through sex. And so God puts this strong urge in us to do this so that the world gets filled with people. Anyway, if you can go without sex and if you can go without that companionship, then I say go without it. You might not you might not have to get married. You might, you might be better off not being married. And I would say that there are plenty of happy people who are not married. In fact, every once in a while they do a study about who are the happiest professionals in the world today. Yeah. You know that 97% of Catholic priests claim to be very happy okay. in their life, and they don't marry. Hmm. 
It's always astonishing to me to see that report come out. It's your wife watching. That's what I want to know. Well, you know, I, I disagree with that doctrine on <laughs> biblical yeah. uh, terms. But, and it's actually, it was only enacted by the Catholic Church in the 13th century. We should mm-hmm. remember that. And pa- Peter uh, had a bride, mm-hmm. uh, had a wife, and, and uh, the, all the other apostles, as far as we know, except for the apostle Paul, had a wife. But anyway, um, they're always happy, these Catholic priests, and they don't get married. Yeah. So, you know, let's not do what is often the, plan, the idea of marriage will make me happy. No, marriage is going to challenge you in different ways than singleness is going to challenge you. Yes, there's companionship, but there's also a lot of sacrifice and a lot of uh, cooperation that some people are not cut out for. Like some people should not get married because they just don't cooperate with anybody. Yeah. And, and that might not be the best plan for their life. And again, if you can go without sex and if you can go without that companionship, you might be called to celibacy. And Jesus says in the, in, to the disciples, he says, some people are called to this for the sake of the kingdom. Hmm. So you can give yourself fully to God's purposes in your life. <clears throat> and that doesn't necessarily mean ministry and professional vocational ministry, but just kingdom-mindedness. Yeah. Like maybe without a wife and kids, you could build this incredible company and, and donate millions to charity and travel the world and help the less fortunate and all that kind of stuff. And a family would only hinder you from doing that. Right. And I don't think that's a problem. Like that's, that's where we got to stay, that away from those extremes. Marriage is the, everything, and then marriage is nothing. So those are my questions to you, and that's how you would work that out. Yeah, depends on your desire. Right? Yeah. Next question. Uh, next one. Is it normal for a Christian who doesn't have many friends to still feel lonely even though they have God in their life? Well, this one's an easy one, and the answer is yes. Yeah. Um, but here's my qualifier for that answer. If you don't put any effort into being in Christian community, you mm-hmm. will be lonely no matter what you do. So you aren't made to be lonely Remember, the first thing that God says that's not good in creation's account, Genesis 1, is that man is alone. Yeah. So loneliness is a severe epidemic in our culture today, and I'm talking about this this weekend at Waters Church. If you tune in at waterschurch.tv online, or if you come and see us in person at one of our campuses, you'll, you'll get a, a strong message about this. You are created for community, but yet when we feel lonely, I think the most important thing that we have to do, and this is a big hurdle in today's social media-crazed climate. And it's becoming a taller hurdle than ever before. And I've lived now 43 years, and I've only had social media in my life for, what, how long has it been a thing? Oh. Since 2007, 6? I was going to say so 10, that 14 years, yeah. Yeah, 14 years 14, or so. Okay. Uh, really, I only started, I think, in 2007. All right. Anyway, sometimes social media creates barriers to relationships than actually bridges to yeah. relationships. Because we look at people from a distance, and then we make judgments about them, and then as soon as we find something about them that we disagree with, then all of a sudden, a person that I could have had a relationship with, I might not even try to have a relationship with. Intimidation. Right. Oh, they see see the world through that political lens? Well, I can't ever talk Mm -hmm. to them. And now we're starting to divide more instead of come together more. And the blessedness of Christian faith is to be in the same church with different people who oppose many things that you think about in terms of the, the world and politics and stuff like that, but still to come to the same church and worship the same God and to enjoy each other's company without fighting about the non-essentials. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so I say to you, if you're feeling lonely, you've got to gear yourself up for jumping over that hurdle that has been imposed on you, I think in many respects, by social media. That social media wall is there. So... I've got to jump over that one, and it's getting higher. I got to, I got to jump higher than ever before. So, what does that mean, practically speaking? Well, if you're not going to church, go to church. Yeah. So again, this is a Christian talking. I'm not talking to non-Christians. Right. If you're not going to church, and I mean physically showing up, show up. Secondly, don't just show up at church once a week. Get involved in small groups. Yeah. And that's exactly why we have them. Yeah. Because you can't do this alone. I couldn't do this alone. I need relationships in my life uh, with other Christians who are of like-mindedness mind, with me, so do you. 
Yeah. And you can speak to this. Like oh, you, yeah. you're a small group leader, and you're an effective one. You've raised up other small group leaders, mm-hmm. but you can you can speak to this. Oh yeah, I mean, I remember my first small group that I came to at Waters Church, you know, many many years ago, and I went to three weddings from that small group. So that's what I always use for people that you know, how can I meet somebody in the church? Get involved in a small group. Yeah. But serve too. People will know you. You'll start to say hello to some people that you never would have before. And let's get know? over that serving hurdle, which is I'm not equipped, or I can't do it, yeah. or I'm not, or there's better people than me to do it nonsense god doesn't call the equipped he equips the called yeah so you just get out there and you step out and take the initiative we're going to talk about that in the book of acts in, in a short while here but i think you've got a, a lot of lonely people this is what i see in my mind and i don't know if this is a prophetic vision from the lord for you but, or not but i just see a lot of people in the church they've got these enormous barriers mm. set up around them Oh, I can't talk to them. They they'll reject me. Or I can't put if I go to that small group, it won't, it won't, they'll hate me or they'll they won't like me or I won't fit in. You've you've put this in your mind. Yeah. You need to jump over that hurdle. And I'm telling you something. You take that first step, the second step gets easier. Mm-hmm. You take that first step to go to church, that second step to get to small group gets easier. But here's a something I want to say to those of you about small group. You sign up, but you don't show up. Yeah. We always say that. It's easy to sign up, but you never show up. You've got to. Force yourself into the car. You know, uh, I read that book, Atomic Habits, by James Clear. Mm. We, we all yep, read that as a staff. Fantastic. And he says, you know, you got to set up your habits to happen automatically. So whatever night that your small group is scheduled, you know, you got to take your, don't take your jacket off when you get home. Yeah. Or, like, put your, leave your keys in the car, you know, or leave the car running so that you just go inside, grab something quick to eat, and then you got to go back out into the car and turn it off. And, well, you're already in the car. Go to small group. Mm-hmm. Whatever it takes so that you create these habits that form community for you. So, yes, it's normal for a Christian to feel loneliness, but you shouldn't feel lonely if you do some active things to create community in your life. Yeah, great. Next question. Uh, Pastor Tim, I'm having mixed feelings about the Eucharist. Can you break it down and explain why we don't do it at Waters Church? Yeah, okay, well, let me explain that we do do it. Um, And the name Eucharist comes from the Greek Eucharisto, which means Thanksgiving. So it's just the Lord's table, the table of Thanksgiving, as Paul calls it. We are giving thanks for Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Hmm. Uh, His body broken, his blood shed for our sins. Um... We are, I believe, celebrating the same table, Christians and Pro- uh, Catholics and Protestants, uh, but we see it differently. Now, transubstantiation, Protestants don't believe that. In other words, that the uh, bread and the cup l- become the literal body, the flesh and the blood of Jesus. Now, at the same time, I am a Protestant, and I don't use the word symbol for, these, uh, for the bread and the cup either. Right. I say, when I say it, I say what Jesus said. This is the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't see any need in my Protestant faith to add a word to what Jesus never said. And Paul didn't say it either in 1 Corinthians 11. He never said, uh, this is the symbols that represent the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. No, he says in 1 Corinthians 11, I receive from the Lord what I pass on to you. The Lord took the bread and he said, this is my body, this is my blood. Okay, so I don't put a word in where Scripture doesn't. So that's where I kind of break away from my Protestant brothers and sisters, right? I'm not scared to say this is the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do I believe in transubstantiation as the Catholics do? No. Right. So what do I really believe? I believe that I should just say what Scripture says. (laughs) This really comes down to that. It's very simple for me. But we do do it. We do it at small groups uh, predominantly. And And we have taught our small group leaders how to do it, how to administer it in your small group. So you should be experienced. If you're in small groups... This wouldn't be a question because you'd be experiencing it there. There you go. And then secondly, we, ex- we experience it once a quarter on the weekend. Mm-hmm. So every three months will be uh, on the weekend, and then we experience it every first Tuesday night, yeah. which is coming up next Tuesday. And won't, we won't have the Deep End podcast next Tuesday, by the way. We will have first Tuesday at our church. So <clears throat> it is happening. Now you say, well, why don't you do it every weekend on the weekend services? Because our church is filled with nonbelievers. Every weekend we have 30, 40 people coming to Christ. There's a lot of people who haven't even come to Christ who should come to Christ in our services. And we're always inviting our newcomers. And the, and the priority for our church is to make newcomers feel like they're part of the church right away. And if we create this barrier, such as the, the Eucharist or the Lord's table, yeah. like that's their first experience is, okay, come this far, but no further. <laughs> You're not welcome. Yeah, yeah. it kind of un, unintentionally sends that message. And you say, well, doesn't it command in the scriptures that we're supposed to do it every week? No. It actually doesn't. 
So you've got to be careful about what you have made a rule that's not based on Scripture, but rather, rather based on church tradition. So that's where we do it. We do encourage everybody to do it at their small groups, and we do it on first Wednesday. And we keep it predominantly out of the weekend for the, resp- for the reason I just said. We want non-believers to feel welcome yeah. and part of our church from the moment they walk in. Uh, so last question, question is also from the same person, uh, another Catholic-based question. But in John 19, 25 through 27, uh, he asked, can you go over this, please? What does it mean? His best friend said, this is a reason to believe in St. Mary. And he said, to be honest, I overlooked it, and it made me feel uncertain. Please help. Okay, well, my best friend said is not good theology. (laughs) (laughs) That's not a good theological resource. I'm just letting you know. Have you gone to the scriptures for what we should believe about Mary, Jesus, John, Paul, Peter? I mean, look, the authority for the church is the word of God. That means that the authority for the word of God is not the church. Mm, That's good. Did you hear that? Because that was very important for you to understand. The authority for the church is the word of God. That means that the church is not the authority for the word of God. So we are under it as church. I am under it as a minister, okay? And so John 19, the passage in question here, verse 25, uh, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, three Marys. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, that's John the the apostle, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Well, what are we to take from that? We were to take from that this, that Jesus, being the oldest son in the family, having his father having passed away, because he is dead by this time, was responsible for the care of his mother. This is Jewish tradition and actually in the law. And he's dying. Right. So he looks to John and says, you need to take care of this business for me. I'm leaving. Right. That's basically what he's saying there. At no, at no point is he saying, she is now the mother of the church. Right. <laughs> That's not good theology, friend, when you, take, when you say, my friend says, what does the scripture say? Yeah. So there's a lot of Catholic doctrines about Mary that Protestants don't agree with. Uh, the perpetual virginity of Mary. We don't necessarily agree with that. Why? Because it talks about his brothers and sisters yeah. in the scriptures. And Catholics say she remained a perpetual virgin. How do you remain a perpetual virgin and yet have other children? They were all immaculate. Even, even at the, uh, uh, the narrative of his infancy, uh, birth narratives in Matthew, uh, is in Matthew, yeah, that um, it says Joseph did not know her until, until Christ until, was born, until yeah. Jesus was born. Yeah. So he did know her right. after he was born. It's in the scriptures. It's in the scriptures. Uh, the uh, co-redemptrix theology yeah. of Mary, by the way, is not official Catholic doctrine. A, a misnomer by Protestants is to believe that Catholics think that Mary is uh, an official co-redemptrix or co-redeemer of, fall, of, of sinners with her son, Jesus. Hmm. That is actually not even true Catholic doctrine. You've got to look this stuff up. Okay, so even they reject that. Good. There is one redeemer. His name is Jesus. Uh, the <clears throat> assumption of Mary that she was raised to heaven... And I found out this week that that was actually based on the fact that um, it was in uh, 451, I think they discussed this, at the Council of Chalcedon, that uh, they wished to go get the mother, the, the, uh, the body of the mother of God, uh, that Mary died in the presence of all the apostles, but that her tomb, when opened upon the request of St. Thomas, was found to be empty. So that they concluded that, therefore, it must have been taken up to heaven. Mm. Now, this, this is a story that was reported to the 451 A.D. Council of Chalcedon. So, and that Council of Chalcedon established the two natures of Christ, a hugely important historical council for the church, and that story is related in that council. So what am I to make of that? You know, here's this very reputable, very important council of the church, and they're talking about Mary's body being missing. I have no problem with that at all. I really don't. What does that have to do with salvation? Number one, mm-hmm. I'm still saved through faith in Christ Jesus. Right. If Mary's body was assumed up into heaven, so be it. The Bible says Elijah was assumed up into heaven. Yeah, so I, I'm not. I'm not here to mince those kinds of things. I'm not here to, you know, dissect every single thing 
in, in Christian, you know, belief and what we can disagree with or disagree on, I'd rather just focus on what we, we, we can agree on. Well, only one person died on the cross for our sins. That's all Only that one died for our sins, and yeah. she died. Yeah. That, that, that right, doesn't approve right. what they just said there. Proves that she died exactly. because she was in actually the grave. That's right, and yeah. thank you for saying that. Um, so there's a lot of Catholic doctrine about Mary that we don't agree with. At the same time, we don't demonize Catholic brothers and sisters. Right. And, you know, just like in our church, and you and I know this, Chris, mm-hmm. from working in the church for so long together, there are many people sitting in our seats on Sunday morning who are not saved, oh, and they absolutely. think they are. Oh, absolutely. And so, too, in the Catholic churches across the world, there are many Catholics sitting in the Catholic church thinking they're saved, and they're not. Yeah, I'm sure every church. In every church. My grandfather was a pastor for 30 years. He used to say it all the time. In every church, there is a church. Mm. And what he meant by that is there's some that belong to Christ sitting there, and there are some that just think they belong to Christ sitting there. And we're going to talk about that also in the book of Acts chapter 8 today. (laughs) So I hope that helps. Um, Please make sure that you do your own research and look these things up for yourself. And then make sure Christians, no matter what, especially those of you coming away from or transitioning from the Catholic faith into uh, the Protestant faith, please make sure that you are reading your Bible. One of the great sins of the Catholic Church historically, and even they will admit this, and it still happens on occasion today, they kept the Bible away from people because they were threatened by that. They were threatened by the layperson having access to the Scriptures themselves right. because it would threaten their authority. It would threaten their control of people. And that was a great sin in the history of the Catholic Church before the Protestant Reformation, so I can even consider it part of my church's history. So the fact of the matter is you've got to go to the Bible. Men and women, as we talked about last week last week on the deep end, men and women went to their deaths, were brutally tortured and massacred to get the Scriptures into your hands. Never forget that. Don't take that lightly. Open it up. Read it. Study it. Learn. See what it says. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks for joining me, Chris. Thanks for having me. We're going to head over now into the book of Acts. The Deep End with Tim Hatch is made possible by contributions from listeners and viewers like you. If you would like to partner with us to support this ministry, you can go to thedeepend.tv forward slash partner or on the Cash App with hashtag TV. Okay, this Okay, this from christianheadlines.com. The Iranian church is the fastest growing in the world. We've talked about this as well before in the podcast, but I just want to reiterate it for what we're going to talk about in the book of Acts chapter 8. The Iranian revolution of 1979 established a hardline Islamic regi- regime. Over the next two decades, Christians faced increasing opposition and persecution. All missionaries were kicked out. Evangelism was outlawed. Bibles in Persian were banned and soon became scarce, and several pastors were killed. The church came under tremendous pressure. Many feared the small Iranian church would soon die, wither, and die, wither away and die. But the exact opposite has happened. Despite hostility from the late 1970s until now, Iranians have become the Muslim people most open to the gospel in the Middle East. How did this happen? Two factors. First, violence in the name of Islam has caused widespread disillusionment with the Islamic regime and has led many Iranians to question their beliefs. Second, many Iranian Christians have continued to boldly and faithfully tell others about Christ in the face of persecution. And ladies and gentlemen, that's exactly how it went in the book of Acts. And that's exactly how it's still going today around the world. The church of Jesus is unstoppable. And we find that in the book of Acts repeatedly happening from Acts chapter 2 right through 28. And we're in Acts chapter 8, and we're going to look at on the heels of the death of Stephen. So Stephen preaches this amazing message last week. We talked about Stephen's sermon This week, we talked about what happens immediately after the church's first martyr is put to death, Stephen. And so here we go into the text. Good things are on the way in spite of bad things. That's the theme of this this chapter. Here we go. Acts chapter 8, 1, 2. It says, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Okay, 
the mention of Saul is important here because we know, in hindsight, who Saul ultimately becomes. He becomes the apostle Paul. But Saul's own testimony bears witness in, in Philippians chapter 3 and in other parts of Acts that his um, mentor was a guy named Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel was mentioned in Acts chapter 5 as the guy who said to the Jerusalem council, leave these guys alone. If it's from God, you can't stop it. If it's from man, it'll naturally die a slow death. So Gamaliel's take on the church was leave them alone. And Paul, just moments later, chapters later, is ready to kill them all, (laughs) which basically says he didn't listen to his teacher. He basically said, no, that's what my old man thinks. I'm not doing that. I'm going to go kill these people. I'm going to go persecute them. And verse 1 also wants us to know that at that death of Stephen, everybody went out preaching. Um, Sorry, they were scattered throughout the uh, regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. The apostles stay in Jerusalem, but the church is scattered because of the death or the persecution, if you will, of the church. This, by the way, this is the first time persecution shows up in the book of Acts. So what happens? What happens is... This sets up the next stage, the second act, if you will, in the book of Acts. So act one is the church in Jerusalem. Act two is the church going beyond Jerusalem into Samaria and other Gentile uh, cities and ultimately around the world of of that time. Persecution in the church have gone hand in hand for 2,000 years. Jesus said it. We shouldn't be surprised by it. If they hated me, they will hate you also. So understand that when we see the church persecuted, it should be a reminder that what Jesus said is true. I, I found this list um, on Open Door, uh, Open Door's website. It's a World Missions, World Watch program uh, website, uh, and it's the World Watch list of the uh, most persecuting nations in the world of Christians. Number one is North Korea. Uh, number two, Afghanistan and Somalia, three, Libya, Pakistan, Eritrea, Sudan, Yemen, Iran, and India. These are the nations, numbers one through ten, that persecute Christianity most uh, forcefully. Now, the, the amazing thing is 260 million Christians uh, in, in the world live in places where they experience high levels of persecution just for following Jesus. That's one out of eight believers worldwide. Uh, one out of eight of our brothers and sisters around this world are under the threat of death, loss of property, loss of job, loss of lifestyle for their Christian faith. We in America don't get this. We just don't get it. We get to argue about things like uh, the co-redemptrix of Mary. <laughs> you know, in the churches around the world, they are struggling to live. And I just think as I say many times to my church here at uh, Waters Church, you've got to get out of this country. You've got to get your teens out of this country. This country is a bubble. It's a protective bubble. It's an enclave of excess and materialism. And the rest of the world is not like this country. And what we have to do also is we have to, be, we have to learn how to be thankful for what God has given us, the freedom of speech, the freedom of religion, the separation of church and state. I'm all for that. I don't want a state-run religion. I want the freedom to believe as I want to believe. And, and, and we've got it so good. And yet, and yet, in the Christian West, America and Europe, Christianity is on the decline. But in these countries, what else was said in this article I just read to you was also in Afghanistan, Afghanistan is possibly the second fastest growing Christian community. Afghanistan. Iran and Afghanistan, number one and number two. The most, uh, gr- the fastest growing churches in the world. And yet they are on the list of the most persecuting nations in the world. So my point is that sometimes we look at uh, the decline of Christianity in the West. We say, what's wrong with the church? There might be nothing wrong with the church. Maybe the church, well, actually, this might be wrong with the church. The church is too cozy, the church is too comfy with the surrounding culture. And so, therefore, to believe in Christ really costs them nothing. You never see Christianity come alive as, as, as wonderfully as when it, it costs you something to follow Christ. That's what the book of Acts is showing us. So, also, I just want to mention on verse 2, it says that devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. I only, say, I only show you that because I think it's important to understand that the early church um, 
they had ser- they had you know real feelings. They really did struggle with the fact that Stephen was put to death, which means that they weren't just pie in the sky escapists. They mess- they wrestled with the reality of persecution, the struggle of believing and staying firm in the faith. And when their when their members died, they they lamented those things. Anyway, moving on, verse three. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. The word ravaging here is a strong Greek word. It refers to the brutal and sadistic cruelty of another person. Saul was not just trying to imprison Christians. He was trying to um, destroy them, um, demoralize them. He was brutal. He says, so as, he says as much in Philippians chapter 3 and in other places, passages in the book of Acts. Well, we have to understand a, a little bit of social strata of, of Judaism in the first century world in the New Testament. Three basic stratas. Number one, uh, we're going to start with the Galilean Jews. And these are our friends, Galilean, uh, Peter, James, John, Matthew. These are the twelve. And they were, and Galilean Jews were kind of like the hillbillies of the uh, first century, the hillbillies. And, you know, they were, they were devout Jews, but they were kind of backwoodsish. You know, they were kind of like, you know, people from western Massachusetts. And I can only say that with authority because I am from western Massachusetts. And so is, <laughs> so is Minnesota Mike over here on the production studio. We know. It's kind of backwoodsy. It really is. It's cute. But anyway, it is. Anyway. Then there were the Jerusalem Jews, and these are the uh, Jerusalem. These were the uh, religious elites, the insiders, the power players of the Jewish world. And then there were the Hellenists, and we've talked about this uh, many times in this season of the podcast, which is these were the sophisticated cosmopolitan Jews who traveled, actually relocated to other parts of the world and had become Hellenized. Greek influenced, and they ha- usually they had a lot of money, but they were also very sophisticated. They were very educated. Here's why I think Saul was so upset, because now Christianity has not just been relegated to the hillbillies of Galilee, and it has not just been kind of you know uh, invasive to the the religious elites of Judaism. Now is touching. This large segment of first century Judaism, the Hellenists. And you know why? Paul was a Hellenist. He was raised in Tarsus. Tarsus was not near Israel. It was actually over by Spain. I think it was on the coast of Spain. And Tarsus was the educational center of the uh, Western Empire. In fact, many historians considered Tarsus to be a more elite educational center than Athens. And that's saying something. So that's like... You know, the, the, the debate up in the Northeast is, is um, Boston or is New York more, uh, you know, sophisticated educationally? And it's like maybe the world thinks New York, but everybody in America understands Boston really has the higher elite educational institutions. And so this is kind of like Tarsus is kind of like Boston. It might be lesser known, but it was probably more elite. So what you have is Saul this very sophisticated, very cosmopolitan, very traveled, very educated man seeing his people now getting seduced, quote-unquote seduced, by the Jesus movement. So that enrages him, and he is absolutely done with the idea of Christianity spreading any further. So he is severely persecuting the church. Anyway, verse 4, here's what it says. Now those who were scattered went about, and I love this, they didn't just go, They went about preaching the word. Here's what I love about that verse. They are fleeing for their lives, and they are not just looking for safety. They are fleeing for their lives, and they are sharing the good news of Jesus. Isn't that cool? Um, We we, we need to see that this is also part of God's sovereign purpose playing out in the book of Acts, because remember Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the theme verse for the whole book Acts 1.8 is, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, that third place on the list there is Samaria, and that's where we're going to head to here with Philip in just a moment. But this, the, the key terms in Acts chapter 1.8 is, you will be. Like, this is not a suggestion. I am telling you, you will be. 
And yet, for the first 10 years or so of Christianity, they didn't go anywhere. They stayed in Jerusalem. Well, how does God get his church to actually do what he called them to do and, and be what, the, what he called them to be? Here's how. Persecution. Whoa. Yes, God can use the bad things in your life for his ultimate good purposes. And that's what this is teaching us. The church probably never would have left Jerusalem if they had found comfort and cozy assimilation to the culture around them. But because there was persecution coming at them, they had to leave, and their leaving actually was leveraged for the advancement of the gospel, which is great news for you, Christian. If you're going through trouble, understand that if you're committed to the cause of Christ, trouble can always be used to accomplish God's purposes in you and through you. So those scattered were most likely also the Hellenists, the Greek speaking Jews, because they were familiar with the world. And, and the scripture says that the apostles stayed in Jerusalem, and they were more, you know, backwards, hillbillyish, you know, Jewish Jews. And so, you know, this is the, the good news of Acts chapter 8. Uh, trouble comes upon the church, and the church actually becomes more diligent in the things of God. Now, Tertullian said this. He's a church father from the second century, and he said this, this quote. He said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, meaning that the more you kill Christians, the more you persecute them, the more seeds of Christian evangelism are planted in the hearts and minds of people. There's actually, I believe it's a true story of uh, back in, in Roman times and one of the most severe Roman persecutions, they were actually putting uh, Christians in barrels and then pouring uh, hot, boiling oil into the barrel, killing them. And there was this one story of uh, a Roman persecutor basically being in charge of pouring the oil into the barrel so that this, I think it was a woman actually, who was a Christian, literally died in boiling oil, but was singing praise to God as she was dying. You say, how does that happen naturally? It doesn't happen naturally. It happens supernaturally. I believe the Holy Spirit comes in and empowers people to withstand in the midst of that. Um, but here's the thing. The story goes that he was so moved by the stance of faith that that woman took, he immediately professed Christ and immediately was executed in the same manner she was, which is just a phenomenal testament to the power of the gospel. It changes hearts, and though you try to kill it and snuff it out, it just makes it go further. It makes it more explosive, such as in Iran, such as in Afghanistan. Maybe the problem with the American church that we keep complaining about, why isn't it growing? Why are our young people leaving? Why are people leaving the church? Maybe the problem is we've just been too cozy for too long. Maybe we need a little persecution. I don't want it. <laughs> I don't want it. I'd rather live a nice, you know, prosperous life. And I believe prosperity is a gift from God and wealth is a gift from God. I'm, I'm not uh, anti that stuff. But at the same time, there's a two-edged sword to prosperity and safety and security. The more secure we are, the less we need God, the less we think we need God. Anyway, this is what happens in the early church just as a testimony to the fact that Christians... Christian, Christian mission moves forward regardless of what the world tries to do to stop it. I love that. And it says that they went preaching the word, which means that they were evangelizing. And the word preaching the word, or evangelizomai, menomai in Greek, it literally just means spread good news. Like So they weren't official preachers and teachers. They were just talking about good news. And I say this to you sincerely. When you talk about your faith, it should be good news, uh, it should not be to-dos, okay, or not to-dos. So you're not evangelizing if you're telling people to stop doing what they're doing. You're evangelizing when you're telling people what God has done in your life, what the good things that Jesus has done in your life, why your life is blessed. That's evangelizing, and that's what they went and did. And we see the expansion of Christianity does not happen through the professional elite. This is the beauty of this ch chapter. It happens through ordinary people who have been touched by Jesus. And so verse 5 leads us to one of those people. His name is Philip. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he proclaimed to them the Christ. And crowds with one accord paid attention to what was said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. And this is a beautiful moment as well. Philip was the guy. He was part of the seven who were called on to wait on tables in Acts chapter 6. And he is the church's first missionary to a foreign area. Isn't that cool? The first missionary was not one of the elites in the church, not one of the apostles. It was Philip the waiter. 
who now goes to Samaria. Let me tell you something. Samaria, to go to Samaria, it was crazy for Philip to do this. But persecution sends everybody everywhere, and he goes there. And he's got the guts to go to this area called Samaria where there was ancient, uh, centuries-old hostility between Jews and Samaritans. We know this from the story of the woman at the well in John 4. Remember, she says, why are you talking to me? I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jew. So they didn't have relations. In fact, uh, some Orthodox Jews prayed every day that they were glad they were not born a Samaritan. They were glad they were not born a Samaritan, glad they were not born a woman, glad they were not born a dog. That was a prayer of uh, some Jewish rabbis in the first century. Samaritans were equated to dogs, okay? They were half-breeds, and they kind of were because they were the remnants of the northern kingdom of Israel's assimilation into the Assyrian Empire. So the Assyrians came and took them captive in 722 B.C., and then they sent them back, and they kind of intermarried with them and kind of tried to breed them out. These half and they became half Jews basically, and so they were kind of held with suspicion uh, by you know uh, Southern Kingdom Jews, devoted Jews, if you will, true blood Jews. But they also made a lot of different uh, rules about the Jewish faith. They only regarded the first five books of Moses, the first five books of our Bible, as the Torah or the actual words of God. They rejected the prophets. They had their own temple. Um, they uh, also capitulated. Uh, to the Greeks, and they actually dedicated a temple uh, to Zeus. Uh, uh, they actually dedicated their their Jewish temple to Zeus uh, on threat of persecution at the hands of Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, and that was in 167 B.C. So they were, in some ways, they were regarded as half-breeds because they were intermingled or intermarried and, and interbred, and then they were uh, heretics because they dedicated their temple to Zeus on the threat of persecution. So there was a lot of animosity toward the Samaritans by the true Jews. And so Philip goes there. Like, Philip goes to where Jews said, you just don't go. And he's going there, and he preaches Christ. And this is what missions looks like. You know what missions looks like? Going to where people don't go. Going to the outsiders. Going to the rejects. Going to the people your Christian community doesn't think is acceptable to the Christian community. And this is in Acts chapter 8, so we're only eight chapters in. It's already happening. Where should Christianity go? It should go to the places where people feel the most disconnected from church. And so this, I just think, is a beautiful thing. And I think it's a wonderful thing to see in the book of Acts. And I think we need to get it back. We need to get the Spirit back in the church to be willing to go wherever we need to go to bring the good news, even if it's to people who are unlike us, or if we've been taught and raised to believe are different than us, we're, we're the church. We're for everybody. The gospel is good news for everyone. So verse 8 says, uh, first, I'm sorry, verse 7 says this. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, and there was much joy in that city. So one of the things that Christians like to, like to debate about again in the church, doctrinally speaking, is something called cessationism. Maybe you've heard of this. If you were raised Baptist, you've probably heard of this. Cessationism believes that the gifts of the Holy Spirit, healing, miracles, signs and wonders, um, tongues, and interpretation of tongues and, and all those things, those ceased, cessationist, ceased with the age of the apostles. And there are millions of churches like this around the world that still believe this. You know that that doctrine is only about 100 years old. It was started by a guy named Benjamin Warfield, a Princeton Theological Seminary in the early 1900s. And he wrote a book about this, about the cessation of the gifts. And one of the key chapter, uh, passages that they use to quote to substantiate this claim is 2 Corinthians 12, 12, where, where Paul says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with the utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And what they say is, you see, Paul talks about the signs of a true apostle. So only the apostles had signs and wonders. Only the apostles could perform miracles. Okay, the argument fails on the merits right away because we are only eight chapters into the book of Acts and the guy casting out spirits and the guy who's seeing the paralyzed healed and the lame healed at his hands is not an apostle. It's Philip the deacon. It's Philip the waiter. 
Philip, the guy who, was, was, who had, a, who had the, the, the tower over his forearm just a few chapters ago, is now casting out demons and healing the lame. So what am I, what am I, what am I pressing in this for? So that you understand that God can use you to perform wonders, signs, miracles, to pray and heal. You, Christian, you. <laughs> you think it's only the professionals that can do this? No, the Holy Spirit dispenses his gifts to as many as he wills. That's in the book of Hebrews. Wherever the Holy Spirit wants to send power, he sends it for his purposes. Does everybody get healed? No. Does everybody that you pray for get healed? No. We don't wrestle with that. What we do wrestle with is the leading of the Spirit, asking for prayer, believing God for miracles, and praying and expecting it to happen. Listen, the new birth whereby we become converted to Christ is a miracle. If we start denying miracles, how, what are we left with? We're left with nothing because there's no way you can come to Christ in your own strength or in argument or reason. In fact, ironically, in B.B. Warfield's, in Benjamin Warfield's book, talking about the cessation of the spiritual gifts, he actually makes the claim that it is a supernatural work that changes the human heart that makes a non-believer a believer. So you have one supernatural work, but I guess nothing else, which also suggests that God only cares about your soul and not your body? So God only wants to work supernaturally to heal your soul and not your body? What are you talking about? This is, this is a tragic doctrine that has infected the church for 100 years. It needs to be cast out, and we need to believe God for great and mighty miracles in the church today. I think that the miracles are far more, um, they, they occur far more often in places where the gospel is making inroads into new areas. And I think that God also has equipped our mind to study science and medicine and all those things. We do it all together. I think not one for the other. I think we should just embrace them all. Anything to make humans live better lives, healthier lives, more productive lives, I'm for, including signs and wonders. <laughs> so anyway, all that to say this, Philip is used powerfully by the Holy Spirit to do this, and so can you be. You don't need a master's degree in theology to be used mightily in the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, it says, so there was much joy in that city. There was much joy in that city. The church changed the city. And I just, I think that's the coolest part of this whole passage. Because here you have this guy who takes the initiative. Now think about that. The initiative to go to the outsider city, Samaria, and to preach Christ and to perform miracles and bring healing to this area, it changes, it changes the whole city. Why? Because here's what the gospel does. The gospel declares that the good news is not just good news for those who believe it. It's good news for everyone who knows those who believe it. What do I mean, what do I mean by that? I mean, by, I mean this. You got a contractor who steals and robs and swindles. And he's kind of known as that kind of contractor. He doesn't get trustworthy jobs. People kind of hold him with suspicion. That guy gets saved. Now he's going to be honest. Now he's going to be a Christian. He's going to be Christian in his dealings, his business dealings. Doesn't that make every homeowner that interacts with that now Christian contractor much better off? Aren't they happier to deal with this guy now because he's going to be honest and, and, and trustworthy and admirable? And what was the change? His heart got changed. And it doesn't matter if the people's house that he works on is not Christian. They're happier because he's changed. That's the power of the gospel. It changes a heart, which changes a community, which changes the world. Anyway, I got a lot more planned to say, but you know what? I want to keep this episode short. We did a lot of question and answers today. I hope that you take this to heart. God can use you where you are and that you start asking God for the Holy Spirit to use you in those ways. And step out in faith and step out into mission and step out into opportunity and serve. You know, at Waters Church, we, we, we could use you, honestly, to step out, use your gifts. Maybe not your gifts right away. Maybe just step out and try something and get involved in the mission because that's where you're going to start seeing the Holy Spirit show up big time in your life. I don't want to go any further. Next week, we'll talk about Simon the Magician, and we'll get into that. Um, I'm so glad that you were with us today. Hey, send us your questions. Love your questions. We won't answer them every week, but we'll get to them as fast as we can. 
Uh, ask at deepend.tv or 508-316-9333. And again, if you haven't heard me rant about this enough, I'll do it one more time. Please move over from the Waters Church YouTube to the Deep End YouTube. YouTube.com slash the Deep End TV. YouTube.com slash the Deep End TV. Subscribe, like the video, and hit the notification bell so that you're always aware of when we are live. That's this episode of The Deep End. I'm so glad that you were here. I will see you next, no, I will see you two weeks from tonight on The Deep End. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End Podcast. We pray it helps you grow in your faith and in your walk with Christ. If you don't already have a home church, we invite you to come out to one of our campuses this weekend. Check us out at waterschurch.org to find a location near you and a service time that fits your schedule. Make sure to stay tuned for next week's episode of The Deep End Podcast.